My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Luke Burgess. Uh, he is uh, an entrepreneur in residence and director of programs at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of American Washington, um, an entrepreneur, uh, a man of many talents, and the author of Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Welcome, Luke. Hey, Alex. Well, good to be with you. Yeah, it's lovely to to have you on. This is uh, this has been a long time coming. I know we've uh, we scheduled this before, but my my laptop burst into flames on on the day, so uh, we we had to reschedule. Uh, but uh, I'm very give happy. You the, the highest highest compliment um, that I could ever give you is that way back in June, a bunch of the people that read my work, especially Twitter anons, started DMing me and saying that I have to talk to you. So oh, really, ooh, <laughs> good. <laughs> the prophecy fulfilled. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've I've also been um, I've been kind of made aware of your work through. I mean, obviously your your Twitter posts, but um, to be honest, I, I wish I could remember someone sent me uh, your book to say, okay, you know, this is very much in the in the you know in the in the field of of thought. You know, there's convergent evolution uh, of many things here, and uh, and it's interesting. So yeah, that's kind of what put me uh, onto onto the trail of, of wanting. Um, and it's very interesting because um, I don't know if it was Peter Thiel or who actually brought Rene Girard back into public consciousness, uh, but um, he kind of uh, appeared on my radar also about, about a few years ago um, and uh, essentially just uh, cured me of my libertarianism in, in one fell swoop. To me, it feels like, you know, the, the most profound hit to the worldview of, of libertarianism. Uh, I mean, this sounds a bit abstract, but uh, it's, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, the whole concept of the self is, is changed uh, once you understand uh, kind of mimetic theory and mimesis. I wonder what, what attracted you to Girard and, and how, how, yeah, how did you come by these ideas? Mm. Yeah, maybe for me, it was kind of um, some naive libertarianism in my younger days um, as an entrepreneur. That was probably part of it. Um, for me, I think it was less trying to sort of work out um, sort of my political views um, and anthropology um, as it was me just trying to figure out what was going on in my life. Um, you know, having sort of bounced around and just got myself into a lot of things that made me unhappy from relationships to jobs to even, you know, founding a couple of companies that I just got bored with after within a year of starting them. I had everything that I ever wanted and I just felt like um, very dissipated um, uh, and, and just sort of bouncing around from one thing to another. And also I, I just, I, I took a real interest in trying to understand human nature and I had a desire um, for like for the, to study the classics. Um, so I, I appreciate it. You just had Spencer on and um, I, I love that conversation because that was um, sort of a burning desire that I had that I had never sort of satiated. I went to undergrad business school and I look back at my life and I think it was one of the stupidest, stupidest decisions that I ever made. Right. If I actually <laughs> Me like, too. And I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I should have known myself better than that. 
that I that I craved um, certain to, to understand certain things about what it means to be human that I just didn't get. Um, and of course, I could have done it on the side, but I didn't. I was too busy. Um, so I think it was that journey that I had, um, kind of my dark night in my late twenties, where um, I literally just decided that I was going to stop everything that I was doing and go on that journey. And that's around the time um, that I discovered Gerard. And he just helped me make sense of definitely like what, you know, he, he gave me an, an adequate anthropology, I think, um, to understand human nature, um, gave me a lens um, that helped me understand the, the sort of root of violence and conflict in the world. And I was also very interested in theology. And, you know, Gerard's work, as you know, is, is heavily theological. And I sort of realized that um, I, I guess I was sort of, um, I, I, I crave to understand more about theology as well. And now I think it's one of the best ways to understand the world from like a theological frame. Um, and so he also like helped me make a lot of sense of questions about religion um, and specifically Christianity that I had and that I was struggling with in my life at that point. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I I encountered Gerard in a in a period where I was still extremely atheistic and I still I still bought into it, um, and and slowly through other through other um, avenues did I find my way back to Gerard's actual you know more religious work, uh, but it, to be honest, if if you look at the, the the whole opus that he's produced, it's you can't really disentangle mimetic theory from from the religious you know it's essentially the way he got to mimetic theory was through the religious pathway so yeah i mean all all roads lead to to that and um you, you have a, a really interesting um uh, uh question on your on your website and i kind of want to start with that you know um like what does athens have to do with jerusalem have to do with silicon valley and i'm like mm -hmm. yes <laughs> what do these things have in common yeah well yeah i mean just asking what they have to do with each other i think is one of the most important questions that we can ask today and that question is a riff off of a very old question uh, from the third century from Tertullian, um, who's sort of considered the, the father of Western theology, um, at least Latin theology. And he asked, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So he, he was you know, grappling with this question, um, you know, does Greek philosophy and, and is Greek philosophy and Christianity, these things compatible? Um, you know, what is, what does philosophy have to do with theology in a sense? And, uh, he sort of came down, you know, very strongly on the side of, um, you know, these Hellenistic influences are, are contaminating Christianity. Um, but th th this was a major question, right? That quite frankly, Christianity has been grappling with for a couple of thousands of years. Um, and depending on who you talk to, um, Catholics, Protestants have slightly different views on that. Um, and, and it just, it occurred to me that, today, um, that's still a very important question to ask. Um, you know, many people would say that theology has, has you know, um, I apologize, I think there's a car horn going outside my, my house here, um, what it, what has, has nothing to do with, with logic and reason. Um, uh, I disagree. Um, and, and also bringing in this third element, what, is, what, if, what do those things now have to do or how do we understand them in the world that we live in with uh, social media? with technology, with venture capital financing, um, you know, these uh, co companies that um, are not, don't seem to be thinking seriously about um, philosophy or theology. <laughs> um, so there's almost like a third, a third strain now has entered the picture. And I think understanding any one of them 
in the modern context, we have to take the other two into account. Yes, I think the the layer that technology adds is um, is is quite quite a disruptive uh, element um, because you know once you understand medic theory, you have a very uh, different perspective on on social media, especially. Uh, and you've you've had actually a, 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 the main thing I wanted to discuss with you in, it was was one of the articles that you've published recently, the one on uh, Achedia, like the the kind of metaphysical boredom. I think that that overlaps very well with uh, with social media. And I've I've taken out a, a kind of a quote from the article here because I think it very well illustrates what you meant with it. And then maybe we can go from there. Um, so the peculiar malaise that social media has generated, which I propose is the root problem, is widespread achedia, uh, a spiritual laziness and boredom characterized by nonstop frenetic activity where nothing really sticks and people begin to have a passive experience of their own lives. They float from one experience to another, one tweet to the next tweet, and experience them as disparate moments, unconnected from one another, and lacking any solidity or embeddedness in which those experiences and relationships might bear some relation. Um, following up, I'm, it's a longer quote, but I think this is, encompasses it really well. This results in uh, a strange kind of cultural anorexia. It is extremely difficult in the current moment to find anything substantial or nourishing to eat. And yet we have learned to grow afraid of the very things that are, because we know that they require more work than we are willing to put in and they may cause us to suffer. Um, end quote. This quote hit very hard. I remember reading it many times and I'm like, yes, this is the affliction <laughs> I am suffering under. Uh, yeah, I think this is, you know, spot on. Um, you know, obviously I don't know if, if everyone else is feeling like this, but I definitely am. So uh, I don't know. It's uh, t- Tell me more about this mysterious malaise. This article came because I read um, John Haidt's um, piece in The Atlantic on social media. Um, and he's got a new book coming out. Um, sort of his take on what's going on in the world, um, what seems so different now, what has social media done to us? And um, I didn't like it. I mean, in, in fact, I, I hated it. It just, it seems sort of superficial. It was like, it's not really getting at the heart of the problem. And um, I've been thinking about this question for a long time. And it's just dawned on me recently um, because I reread a book on Achadia just over the last couple of months. Um, and I, I I realized that I think is the thing which highly related to mimetic desire, mimesis, that explains what's going on better than anything else that I've found. And what is achadia? I mean, it's it's really one of the seven deadly sins traditionally, um, often translated as sloth. But I, I really don't think the word sloth captures like what's going on um, with that with that particular malaise or sickness. You could think of it as. Um, it really is um, a, a false sense of freedom is, is essentially what Achadia is. Um, it's the idea that, um, you know, a, a person is happy simply by pursuing and satisfying all of their desires, you know, one after another, which um, anybody who has actually tried to do that, and I have, um, knows that that's extremely unsatisfying eventually. Um, it's like trying to just, you just need more hits of a drug and eventually it just makes you miserable. Uh, physically and spiritually, um, and it's it's a it's a false sense of freedom where like one's energies are just completely dissipated, right? It's the, it's not grounded in anything. There's no embeddedness. Um, there's no context for for development, and we're just sort of it's floating around in a sea of liquid modernity. Um, 
And it's, it is metaphysical boredom. And part of the metaphysical boredom stems from the fact that there, there isn't much of a metaphysics underlying um, the person who's suffering from achadia. I think like, I don't know what like our, our national metaphysics is here in the US anymore. Like we don't, we can't seem to sort of agree on anything. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's a very nihilistic sort of um, perspective on, on the world, um, which causes one to not be able to sort of sink down into any real relationships. And I think it's, it's why, you know, most people, um, myself included, um, sometimes get so much um, short-term satisfaction from scrolling on social media. Um, it's, it's almost distracting us from having to deal with, um, you know, the, the weight of reality. So, you know, in that piece that you quoted from, I, I, um, I mentioned that the unbearable um, lightness of being. I recently reread that book, and I think that book is essentially dealing with, with the same exact problem, right? The main character suffers from this metaphysical boredom. Um, he's, he's terrified about having a real relationship with anybody. Um, you know, he always tries to like, you know, leave, leave the house, um, before, uh, he never likes to sleep in the same bed as any of the women, um, any of his conquests. And, uh, and then there's one night when he sort of accidentally falls asleep and you know, he wakes up and the woman he was sleeping with is, is clinging to his hand. Um, and it's, it's sort of like a, should have served as a bit of a wake up call. Like, oh, here's here's, you know, reality calling to me, right. With responsibilities and, and, and here's a person, um, next to me who, who is, is, you know, worthy of, 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 um, not becoming, uh, the, the, uh, one more sort of object that I'm sort of using in order to satisfy my, um, my metaphysical boredom in a sense. Um, and it, it seems like we're, we, we live in a world where a lot of people are suffering from this and I, I have myself. I mean, I think that's why, I related to it so much in my early days. Um, it was, it was that sense of achadia, right? Just chasing highly mimetic desires um, without a real sense of self, without any kind of metaphysical grounding, um, an understanding of commitment, right? Like commitments change relationships like very quickly once there's a commitment. And I think that this whole movement is where I began to sort of move back to. I guess you could call it a more traditional sort of classical understanding of the world. Um, because I was like, you know, there, there's a lot of wisdom in these, in these 1800 year old texts that identified this thing that I'm seeing right now in my own life. Yes. I, I uh, completely agree with this framing. Uh, and uh, I've also echoed the sentiment. I mean, if I've kind of, feel that a lot of people who've, you know, been through the career path, you know, have, have reached a certain height. And then you see that after every level, you know, the, the abyss is still waiting for you after you got your trophy. Uh, and it seems to be more wider and more and more scary every time <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're disappointed that, you know, the, the thing that you were chasing was actually nothing. Um, yes, I think there's, um, there's a, an, another layer to this. I think it's, you know, the idea of um, identity, um, you know, that feels kind of paper thin as well. Um, and it feels like um, people tend to cling to, uh, to, to this, um, to these new kind of skin suits of what used to be uh, an, an actual real, um, you know, for example, you know, identity 
used to be your family, you know, your role in a certain society, um, a, a very strict interdependence where if you didn't show up for harvesting, you know, people would <laughs> might starve. Um, we've been able now to opt out of all of these, you know, struggles. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. And essentially technology allowed this, um, the industrial revolution allowed this. Uh, now we're at the point where, you know, shelter and food, you know, even, even for some of the, the, the poorest people is somehow not a problem anymore. And now we've moved on to this point where um, we really don't need each other anymore. That's, that's the reality. Um, so uh, we're made for struggle. We don't need each other anymore. And then we, we're, we're kind of put in this place where, you know, uh, you don't, um, you're not prompted to do these things if you don't have kind of a metaphysical outlook to, to actually uh, plug into. So uh, do you think people will, will opt back into this? Is Achadia, um, I don't know, urgent enough for people to, to, to go back or to, to opt into, um, you know, the struggle of life? I think that the, the desire is there to, um, to fight back against this. I, I think people know that they're suffering from something. And I mean, the response that I've, I've sort of received just from that article alone it, in itself tells me that there's, there's a desire um, to, to, to ground ourselves in something, right? In, in, in community, in relationships, in, in family. Um, I speak to quite a few high school kids um, in my role at the university. Um, I just did last week and they, I literally talked to them about this exact topic. I, I gave them a talk essentially on that article. We talked about Achadia and we talked about mimetic desire. And if you would have asked me a year ago as I was writing my book, if I could speak to high school kids about those topics, I would have probably said no. Um, they might not understand. They completely understand, maybe better than anybody. And, you know, we just had this fascinating dialogue and they were like, yes, that's, that's what's going on. That's the way that I feel. And there was like, a deep, deep hunger there um, to know themselves and to not, um, they, they know they're being lied to. You know, they, they, they know they're being lied to about things like identity, not all of them, but I think most of them have a sense. They're not stupid. And they, they know that something is off and they're sensing it. And we, you know, we, we had a wonderful conversation about like, well, what, where does identity come from? When we talked about the things that you just mentioned, but also the idea that, um, and, and it is a very classical sort of Christian uh, understanding of identity is something that's profoundly relational. And this is one of the fundamental premises of Girard's work and mimetic desire. You know, humans are desiring creatures um, and we're social creatures. And, you know, we're, we don't manufacture or generate our desires ex nihilo out of nothing. Um, you know, we're not these individual, uh, completely autonomous little, little gods that can desire whatever we want to. Um, we, we, we live in relationship with other people, um, who, who form, um, who end up forming and helping form our desires. And we'd better take that seriously. And that requires a certain degree of, of humility, um, in, in accepting the fact that we are, um, we're reliant or that we're simply that we're, that we are creatures in the first place. And they get that. Mm, yeah. I mean, um, 
I mean, Mimesis, you you kind of, uh, you know, reading the book, it feels like, um, you know, it's obviously a book where you've processed all of these ideas for yourself. It's, it has these very kind of helpful little tactical bits. They're actually called tactical. It's very practical. Uh, it's it's partly philosophy, but also, you know, self-help is a, is, a, is a weird genre. People don't like to be called self-help, but it's essentially forced helping yourself in managing this. I mean, do you see Mimesis as an entirely negative um, phenomenon or something that one must shield himself from or is there a kind of a way to uh, to harness mimesis or are we just you know we're just on the on the river of it you know as you you never know when when it gets you I don't view it as, as an entirely negative phenomenon even though um, it seems to be much more negative in the, in the world today there's there are many more forces um, destructive forces of mimesis that are out there um, social media is, is certainly one of them um, which is just leading to all kinds of, of weird mimetic behavior that I think is leaking out of social media, out of technology and into real life. Um, you know, I, I've seen that over the last 10 years. Um, it, we seem to have more like mimetic relationships, um, reactive relationships. And I think it's just fueling this kind of sort of reactionary nature. Um, but I, I, it's not entirely negative. I mean, Gerard himself said that, you know, mimetic desire is um, a wonderful thing in the sense that it's what makes us human. Um, we're, we're able to be in relationship with other people. Mimetic desire fundamentally represents a, a desire for transcendence in the human person, right? Like we always, we're never satisfied. We always want to sort of go, go beyond. And um, it, it, it's, it's a desire for transcendence. And we can try to satisfy that desire for transcendence in, in positive ways um, or in, in unhealthy ways, right? By trying to um, be somebody else or, um, or, or, I mean, oftentimes in, in, in violence, right? Like Gerard views violence, specifically um, mob violence and, and uh, community violence, the scapegoating as a false sense of transcendence, right? It makes, it makes people feel like they've somehow tra transcended something. It's the foundation of the sacred. But the, I think the only solution um, to the destructive patterns of mimetic desire um, is to replace them with positive ones. And it's, I, you know, I spend the whole second half of the book talking about this. Um, who, what are good models to have as, as, as a human being? Um, I think religion has traditionally supplied um, a lot of those models. Um, I mean, it ma makes the explicit claim, at least in Christianity, right, that there's only one perfect model. Um, and you know, the saints, for instance, um, and, and classical virtues, things like this, like human beings have a nature. It's not some unknowable X. Um, and uh, without that, sort of, I think without that framework and without that context um, in, a, in a Western world that's really repudiated um, religion entirely, um, all of the models um, become internal to the culture. You know, there's, there, there, are, there are no more transcendent models anymore. So, you know, we look to our right, we look to our left, um, and everything just becomes sort of this imminent um, reactionary game. So I think that having transcendent models is important. Having the right models is really important because it's, sort of like, um, uh, it's sort of like trying to overcome an addiction without having anything good to replace it with. That's, that's one way that I would view um, mimetic desire, right? We can't escape it. And if we just try to escape the, the destructive side of it without um, something good and true and beautiful, um, 
will will always revert back to it because the energy is still there. It needs to go somewhere. Um, and without replacing it with something, we're just going to continue to revert back to these old destructive patterns. Mm. What do you make of the fact that there are kind of, almost, you can almost personalize, uh, you know, the, the silos that you go into uh, on the internet and that, you know, there not only are there no transcendent models anymore, you, you, you know, every person you meet on the street has a extremely different model or, you know, there are people who have, I know, millions of followers that you've never heard of. You will never hear of them. And there are hundreds, you know, thousands of them who have their own uh, base of people, their own small cult. Um, I mean, how, what, what is the effect of that? You know, we don't even have like a, a common cultural, you know, foundation, even if it used to be celebrities, but now it's, it's not even that. Now there's micro celebrities, niche internet micro celebrities. <laughs> Yeah, I, I asked on Twitter um, a while ago. I was like, "Is there a, is there a shared model? Is there somebody um, that Americans on the right and the left like both um, equally respect?" And it was crickets, right? There's like nobody anymore. And I I think that's a problem. Right? Dolly Parton, I think, was the, was the best answer that I got. And I'm not even so sure about that. Yeah. Actually, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good one. Um, maybe some athletes, um, but I feel like athletes shouldn't even count with this kind of question. Um, uh, so I think that it's it's creating a I, I'm I'm worried about the direction that's headed in right? because we can everybody can just sort of retreat into their own um, little world, um, subscribe to you know the Substacks that they want to read and listen to the podcasts that they want to listen to, um, and there are no this, the the dialogues are not taking place between people that I think need need to have dialogues. Um, dialogue is really broken down because um, there's no, there's, there, you're right. I mean, there's no shared, ex- there's, there's not a lot of shared experiences anymore. Um, and people are operating off of different premises and it's hard to have conversations when you're operating from completely different premises than somebody else. Right. I think this is part of what's going on with the abortion debate in the U S um, and I feel like what we need to do is have the courage to sort of go back to first principles and to be able to have conversations about premises and things like, you know, met- metaphysics and fundamental um, things that we just seem to have like started to take for granted a long time ago without actually questioning them or, or probing them. And until we start asking the hard questions, as, as at least here in the U.S., um, we're just, I think we're just going to continue on this um, sort of thin, superficial sort of layer of things and not actually drop down to have the, the serious discussions. And they're there. I mean, they are happening, but they're just happening in, in very specific places. Um, and the people that are having them, I think, are nourished. But somehow that needs to that needs to infect more people. Yes, and I think there needs to be definitely a, a, a bigger involvement in, in so-called meat space. You know, a, a lot of this stuff cannot happen online. I mean, this this is wonderful that we can have this discussion and that I, you know, get to have chats with some very uh, amazing people uh, abroad. Uh, but, you know, there there's a need. And you know what, why I ask? Because I feel like, uh, you know, some, in a way, I feel like there's... Um, 
a little bit of a lack of mimetic desire nowadays. And, and, and for example, in my life, you know, I, I work remotely. I, you know, most of my friends live either in London or they're abroad or so, you know, I have some interactions in reality. I have a small baby, so I don't really, you know, get to do the same stuff that I used to do. But, you know, it's, it's to be honest, it's mo- mostly online, you know, the, the big chunk of it. And, um, and this is kind of like a, an anecdote of what happened recently to me because, uh, you know, I, both my husband and I, we both work, work online. We have different, you know, you know, we plug into our own world when we're on the computer. You know, we have a very, you know, great home life. But I realized that um, a friend of mine just told me that uh, one of my neighbors uh, was interested in asking, like, who's my husband? You know, he's a, you know, he's, who's this tall, you know, handsome man who, uh, you know, she could see in the driveway, I don't know, taking out the trash or something like that. And I thought, you know, actually, yes, he is a tall, handsome man. He's my husband. And it's one of those things, you know, I really didn't think about him. Obviously, I do think about him like that, otherwise I wouldn't have married him. But I haven't thought about him like that until she highlighted the fact that, yes, indeed, he is this person with these parameters. Uh, and I feel like, you know, being so atomized, being so plugged in, uh, you don't really get that context. And it is an important context, uh, you know, knowing each other, not just through interactions with each other, but as we are in the world to other people is, uh, is something that, you know, at least for me is, is uh, slowly in, in low supply. Yeah. I mean, there's something I think sort of um, dangerous about being anonymous, um, at least in the, in the real world. It's kind of like, you know, having lived in New York City, you can be completely anonymous. I can walk in a store and be a total asshole to somebody and like, you know, I don't know, probably wouldn't even remember me if I came back in there a month later, so many people in and out. Right. Um, I think people do stupid things, um, when there's no accountability or, or no responsibility. And, um, you know, the, I'm, I'm just, the older I get, the more I just have an appreciation for being part of a community, um, and investing in that community and, and, and knowing people. And there's something, um, yeah, you know, I think this, this sort of explains, I think, part of what goes on um, online is, is there's many benefits, as you and I both agree. Um, we, I think we both like many things about um, the ability to be pseudo-anonymous or anonymous online. But um, this is a actually fundamental thing that, you know, Gerard himself talks about is it's often um, when when we don't, when we're no longer an individual and we're sort of part of an anonymous crowd, um, bad things tend, tend to happen throughout human history, right? It's just like scapegoat mechanism, like one, 101, um, where, you know, nobody, you know, nobody can, can point to me and say that it was me who did something. It's just, I'm just sort of a member of the, of the crowd. I'm just an anonymous member of, of some kind of a mob. Um, and I've always, you know, I, going back to the beginning of the conversation, I think I've always been fascinated by like social, like group um, crowd behavior. And I've never my entire life been comfortable in, in crowds, like never. Um, for some reason, they always have like, even things that I like and support, I've, I've always sort of like felt this sort of like tension there. Like I can easily get lost in it, like notice something about myself. It's like, I'll, I've never been to a march for anything in my whole life. Um, even things that I like want to support. I just, it's not my thing. I just don't do it. But I've, it's, it's why I've been thinking deeply about those questions. And I think there's some comfort and ease in retreating into um, a group. Um, but we also have to maintain our sense of self and our sense of self-possession. And 
you know, that is a, is a hard thing to do. It's sort of a, a, a skill that it's really important to have, right? To be able to enter into a conversation or into a crowd and maintain a sense of, of, of self-possession and not get lost in it while also being able to sort of engage with it. So it's both and, um, you know, and it can't be one or the other. So that's just something that I think um, is, is really important and that we learn that skill um, in, in community, um, in, in count, having collisions with people that, that, you know, might not necessarily agree with us and learning how to have those conversations. And people growing up today simply are not put in a situation where they even have to. So the skill is never learned. And here we are. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it also depends on the um, kind of the, um, the the point in the life cycle of a group um, where, you know, for example, I think anonymity is incredibly important for essentially kind of a dissident fringe where, you know, the, the role of anonymity uh, uh, is to be able to uh, crack jokes, you know, kind of the, the gesture archetype to be able to point at the errors of the, of the center. Um, at this point, I think, you know, at least the kind of the sphere that I'm in is starting to, to become bigger than that. I think it's moving into a different stage of the life cycle. Uh, and then you have more complex dynamics and you do have a little bit of a mob situation, you know, festering in the inside. So I think, you know, like you said, um, uh, you know, there, there has to be, uh, a weighing of 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 these these dynamics and you know kind of taking the good with the bad unfortunately i wouldn't i wouldn't renounce anonymity i think it's still you know um yeah it still serves much more of a of a purpose and it also you know it also allows for a certain type of of discourse that you know obviously can can veer off the deep end and it also has you know, strange mimetic incentives, you would say, you know, because, you know, if you want to be king of the frogs, you have to be the most, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, you know, scorched earth type of <laughs> type of person. You have to go uh, furthest than, than anyone. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I feel like the, the price we pay for that is still, is still well worth paying. For sure. Yep. I totally agree. Um, I wanted to also ask you, um, how do you kind of manage mimesis in your own life? I mean, have you have you used this knowledge for for good or evil? Uh, have you uh, <laughs> have you used it in in business? I know Peter Thiel is is known for someone who who thinks that this you know this theory of uh, medic desire is extremely important for business, and he um, yeah he he uses it as well. I don't exactly know how he uses it, but uh, I'm sure it can be used. I think. Um yeah, my, I mean, my my first sort of temptation when learning about Gerard and learning about mimesis was to think of it as something to use, right, to my own advantage, right? Like, how can I use this to be a better investor? How can I use this in my in my business and my relationships? Um, and I and I think that it is possible to do that. Um, in fact, like when I talked to Peter, he said sometimes it's really smart to bet on mimesis. Um, you know, and, and sort of said that this is what made him realize um, that he should invest in Facebook, right? He saw it as this powerfully mimetic phenomenon. And, you know, he told me a story that, uh, you know, if you were having like a power lunch in, in certain New York City restaurants, uh, back when Facebook was sort of getting off the ground, there were literally people, you'd overhear conversations about how Facebook was, um, was had reached a peak or something like that, right? And this is like around the time when he was thinking about investing. Uh, and he was like, no, what they don't realize is that the mimesis, right, like it's fuel, fuels more mimesis. And I'm going to bet on mimesis. So he famously gave them uh, their first half a million dollars. And it's, it can be kind of a tricky game to sort of go like think, 
try to be anti-memetic all the time, right? To be like, oh, memetic desire is a bad thing. Um, I always need to be anti-memetic because that can, first of all, just lead to like super weird, uh, strange like behaviors. Um, and you know, it's probably not a, a very smart thing psychologically. I mean, ironically enough, that's the name of my Substack is anti-memetic, but um, I try to I try to fr- frame it up as as having that self-possession that, that I just talked about, right? To be able to to sort of step back. It's like, oh well, I I you know I see this particular twenty-four hour news cycle. Maybe I'll just wait, you know, a day before I jump in and get completely pulled by the riptide. Um, just basic little things like that. Um, and how have I used it in my own life? I mean, I, I, I've, I think just realized that so, so much of any relationship problem that I've ever had has been driven by, by, you know, unhealthy mimesis, right. That leads to rivalrous behavior. You know, I've, I've seen this with, um, with a, a business partner. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many like married couples I have that have, have, you know, said, Oh, I see this in my relationship with my wife. Like, um, it's a weird thing to say, but in certain domains, we actually view each other as rivals, right? Like when we're when we're talking about a specific topic, right? Um, or like how who's a better driver or whatever. And it's like, you know, we 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 have to like fight for supremacy in this one particular like domain of knowledge or responsibility or or whatever it is, right? And it's silly, but like we all do that in some ways. And I saw that in my own life. Um, so I think the most important thing that I've done is um you know, do the reflection that I need to do to see where, where I'm, you know, I tend to be mimetic in unhealthy ways. Um, the things that are, you know, a, a, attract me to like move, move towards, um, things that I know are, are going to make me uh, miserable. It just lead to, or, or lead to, um, just pull me into like ridiculous things that don't actually matter. Right. Uh, and you know, for me, one of the ways that I did this was, was literally by, probably one of the most important seven days of my entire life is literally by going on a, a silent retreat, um, at a monastery. And I think after the first three days, the, um, like the, the, the layers of sort of mimesis started to, to fall away, or at least started to see them a little bit. And so many of the things that I had done just seemed silly to me. And, and then of course, you know, a week after I came back into the real world, I was just sort of like right back to operating in the same way. Um, caring about all of the same things again. And I just realized how powerful it was. And I realized that this is a, you know, a, a continual work, right? Something that, that I need to continually re- remind myself of. And, you know, quite frankly, I think it's been, um, this is one of the most important parts of um, Christianity and specifically liturgy that I think a lot of people don't realize is that it's actually one of the main functions of it is an is an anamnesis, right? It's a remembering of of, of something, um, and you know it's why you know, Christians you know do it every week, right? It's a, it's a remembering of of a certain sort of event and and something true about human behavior, um, and I, I sort of realized in my own life that part of this sort of anti mimetic stance is is a remembering, right? Um, and I think we as humans have, especially now, seem to have very short memories of anything. I think this is one of the biggest um, dangers of, of technology or social media, that it's making us forget things because everything is now, everything is in the moment. Um, call it the current thing, whatever. <laughs> um, and we're, we just have very short memories. And that is memory, anamnesis, is one of the antidotes to unhealthy mimesis. 
And and I think there's a a, a big part that ritual plays because um, I feel like, uh, you know, kind of the the knee-jerk reaction of of modern man to uh, a problem is to think his way through it, you know, to to think, okay, you know, I'm just going to sit down and, and, you know, write down a plan. I'm going to make a 10 point checklist of, you know, the ideas that I want to implement. And I feel like, uh, you know, at least in my life, when I try to do that, I just end up, you know, thinking myself in circles. And and I feel like uh, a a lot of these things and a lot of things in in religion, you know, like, like our monastic traditions, fasting, things like that are very, very practical. They're very embodied things. Uh, They're kind of retreating from the mind as well. I mean, even, even outside of Eastern mysticism, you know, even just, uh, you know, doing the rosary, you know, just a repetitive thing that's, you know, has to be done in, in, in the body. Um, You know, I think that's missing completely from, from most people's lives. I mean, exercise is one way of doing that. That's one kind of one thing that we do, some of us, uh, but it's e- even that it's kind of, you know, you've got your app and then the app tracks you and then you've got your stats and all this stuff and you, you kind of transform it into um, kind of you, you verbalize, you literalize it through the technology. So it's, it's, you kind of rob it of just this, this embodied thing. So I feel like, you know, there, there has to be some way of, of bringing that back. Totally. Right. We, we, we have, we want to hack for everything. And I think, um, another thing that I think uh, uh, sort of a spirit of our age is sort of what I would call Gnosticism or, or a general not Gnostic spirit, um, which does have to do with disembodiment, right? Like the, the spirit is separated from, uh, from the body. Um, but part of Gnosticism also is sort of um, salvation by knowledge, right? Literally, right? It's like, if I just knew this thing, Mm. Um, I'll, I'll be able to sort of, uh, think my way out of this. If I just learn this hack, I'll be able to solve this, this problem. Right. Um, and sometimes like the answers are not like that complex. They're just, they're, they're very simple, but they're very hard. And, uh, so I think sometimes like we, we want, like, we, it feels really good to like know more and, uh, you know, read a bunch of things and, and think that we found the answer buried in, in all of this content, I found this gem, um, and this is going to help me um, fix this problem that I have in my life. Whereas, as you said, right, um, some some problems are not intellectual. I think that some problems are spiritual, um, and there's a lot of wisdom in some of these traditions and in some of these these rituals. Um, to get actually, sometimes the best thing to do is to get out of our heads, not not to just think harder about things, but but to get out of them. And I'm. I'm sort of naturally, and this is something that I've learned about myself. I, especially earlier in my life, that was my default mode is to just um, know more, always, right? to just know more. And part of the kind of humbling process of um, going, like going back to some, some of this ancient wisdom, for instance, in Western monasticism, was that, you know, Luke, sometimes the most important thing that you can do for yourself right now is to sit quietly in a room alone, right? Like Pascal famously said, right? Like all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Um, and if you ever try to do that, you, you'll understand what he, what he means because all kinds of crazy shit is stirred up. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I've, I've, I've also been to, uh, to a silent retreat as you do if you work in tech. <laughs> and at, at one point, you kind of reach the, the end of that and you have to do something. Uh, and it also involves sitting in a, in, in a room uh, quietly and it is uh, excruciating until it isn't. And then it is 
And and then unfortunately, like you said, it's something that you forget about 10 days after the retreat. And then, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a shower. You have to do it every day in some form, you know, just like you said, remembering that that's the, that's, that's um, a state that is accessible to you. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of organizing one right now, um, I guess sort of by popular demand, because this has been a conversation I've had with hundreds of people over the last year in particular. And I finally decided, all right, Luke, like put your money and your effort where your mouth is and, and hold one of these things, right? You've been doing it every year for 10 years. Um, you know, why don't you just invite people and, and see what happens? So, you know, that's probably going to happen, um, you know, in the next six, six to eight months or something like that. Uh, so check back in with me. I don't know. I mean, we could all just kill each other or something like that. It might, it might not go well. So I'm just, I'm going to just try to start with it with one day, right? It's like, I'm going to, everybody's going to show up on a Friday. We're going to have a nice meal together and then we're going to set the stage, um, Saturday, total silence. And then on Sunday, we'll come back together and have a nice brunch or something like that. I literally just want to see what happens. And the people that are going to be invited to this thing are going to come from all over the place. Um, you know, tech companies, religious people, non-religious people. I don't care. All you need to do is follow the rules. <laughs> the rules of that Saturday is total silence. Um, it's going to be one of the weirdest things you've ever done in your life because, you know, at the meal that we're going to have, nobody's going to talk. All you're going to hear are the clanking of spoons and the side of the soup bowls. Um, maybe we'll play some classical music in the background to, to, to numb that a little bit. But, um, and we'll see what happens. And uh, I think, like, the, the funny thing is, is there, there is a deep desire to do that because I think, like, people know that, yeah, it's, it's really hard to do that. And like most of us wouldn't do that on our, on our own. Um, and we do it kicking and screaming. And, you know, certainly for the first, you know, few hours of that, we're, we're doing everything that we can to, uh, to try to find a way out. And the only way out is really through, through the silence. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because at, at the beginning, when you, you know, when you get to one of these, um, you, tr at least in my case, I try to kind of, uh, imitate language through body language like I constantly uh, like mimic other people and just like smile at everyone and then at one point you just kind of get tired of doing that and then you just kind of relax into the the awkwardness of it and then you stop doing that but then you know after a while there's kind of this kind of beatitude that you know you, I just end up smiling anyway because you know I'm just in a good mood but it's not necessarily at the people it's just about the situation so it's it's a it's a it's a roller coaster ride I'd recommend it to anyone who can do it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great initiative. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think it's going to be excellent. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. And I mean, you'll see, you'll see people do weird things. You learn more about humanity, um, than you may have learned in years. You'll go see some, like another man, like go over and start like smelling flowers and doing all kinds of weird things. And it's like, yep, that's, that's what we're here for. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of stretching, <laughs> sure. especially because you know if you if you sit like in a, a meditative position for a while, you you, you need to move. Um, there's also a, a quote in in one of your pieces. I can't remember which one. I have it here um, from Rene Girard. Um, he says that the problem with modern man is not that he's too mimetic, but that he is not mimetic enough. I mean, mm -hmm. do you have any insight on, on on this quote? Why why is you know modern man not mimetic enough? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you said it earlier, um, and, and that's, I think that, that that's exactly what Achadia is. I think Achadia is essentially being weakly mimetic in all of the wrong ways and not having any strong mimetic desires, for instance, for, um, like, let's say a transcendent model. So 
here's how I would like characterize somebody that's in, in, inflicted with with achadia. Um, they're they're completely consumed by little sort of conversations and Twitter debates and stuff like that, and inflames their passions and or you know they 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 littlest news news cycle political thing. Um, they're just sort of pulled in a million different directions, um, and then they walk into um, I don't know, the, the, the Met in New York and they're standing in front of the most sort of like beautiful Renaissance painting imaginable and it doesn't affect them at all. Um, or, you know, they, 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 they see somebody, um, perform some like heroic act of, of, of charity. Um, I don't know, they're with the missionaries of charity in Calcutta and they see this sort of, somebody's like washing somebody else's feet and it doesn't do anything to them. Right. They, they, there's like this tremendous model of, of goodness and, and, and beauty and, and human dignity and, and caring for, for another person. And it doesn't move them. And I think it's literally just that. It's that we're, we're not mimetic enough um, in, in, in the ways that we need to be, right? Like I, I want to be mimetic in that situation. I want to be infected by, by those desires, but I'm so weakly mimetic, um, like the, the underground man in Dostoevsky, Right where I'm, I'm just weakly and pathetically mimetic in in all of the wrong ways, and it begins to sort of you know living this sort of pornographic life um, destroys the ability to have values or 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 powerful mimetic models essentially affect me. And uh, I'm a big fan of um, a philosopher named Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, Austrian philosopher. And his whole kind of approach to ethics was what he called value response. And he talks about, you know, there, there are values in the world and there are objective values in the world. Not everybody would agree with that. I, I certainly believe that there are um, different kinds of values. There are aesthetic values, there are moral values. And it's actually part of ethics is actually like responding adequately to the values that, that we come into contact with in the world. And when we don't respond in um, sort of an appropriate way to a value, it, it might mean that we have some, somehow somewhere along the way, um, our desires or our ability to respond to that value in the first place has been affected, right? Maybe because I've been sitting on my couch playing video games for 10 years so that when I see something that's actually like beautiful, it does, doesn't, doesn't move me. We sort of deaden our desires in these ways. And that's what a chadia is. It's a, it's a thinning out of desires. And I think that's what Gerard was, was referring to, is that we don't have the strong mimetic desires that, that lead to, um, you know, heroism, for instance, um, or, you know, some, some deeply like human um, emotions and acts so that we can be moved by other people. That's, that's the way that I would put it. Yes, I, I really resonate with kind of the description of the state as being thin. You know, it's it's very it's surface level, very superficial. Um, and it's it's kind of like um, a, a part of me is always uh, in in the other realm. You know, there's some there's some part of like my processing power that's always kind of in the background, even when I'm engaged with with reality that's processing some. I don't know, something that I saw there or some one of these ghosts that kind of keeps whispering to me that, okay, you know, this is something you should pay attention to uh, and, you know, this is important. Um, I think there's also kind of the layer of the fact that there are so many easy wins in these fields, you know, 
you know, video games, obviously, that's what they are explicitly. Easy wins, you know, the simulation of heroism on your couch. Uh, but I think, you know, Twitter is, is similar as well. It's, it's extremely gamified. It's, it's essentially, I don't know, Call of Duty for word cells. You know, it's, yeah, you know, how, how many points are you going to rack up today? Uh, so it's, you know, there, there's one of these traps for, for anyone, you know, for some other people, it's, I don't know, Candy Crush on their phone or something like else. But there's, there's, there's always this little thing that can, that, that whispers to me that, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for you to win. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there, there are easy wins all, all over the place. Right. And like we, each of us can find a little domain where we can rack up the most easy wins possible, but that might not necessarily, you know, be um, the kind of win that's going to satisfy us. So, you know, this, this I, conceptualizing mimetic desire in terms of thin and thick desires for me has been really important. And, you know, when I refer to, to thin desires, I just mean um, exactly what we just talked about, right? Like the, the fleeting, highly mimetic desires that there's no sort of underlying real substrate there, um, you know, sort of leads to the throwaway culture. And a thick desire um, is there's something about a thick desire that that is that is something uh, that's, that has, there's something true about human nature in that right. This is like Aristotle Nicomachean Ethics 101, right? Like um, a, a human being is 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 has a nature, um, and there are certain sort of desires that help the, the the human person achieve excellence and ultimately be happy. And those those are more in the realm of what I would call thick desires because they're they're insatiable, they're insatiable, right? Um, and and we can pursue them confidently. And just knowing the difference between the two is really the first step. Um, who are your models today? Is is there anyone that that we might recognize, or are they all from your, uh, your very personal domain? I don't think that I have um, any any living models, to be perfectly honest with you, right? And I think that in different domain domains. Um, you know, we can have different different models. Um, obviously, as you know, as a Christian, you know, Christ is is, is the supreme model, right? Um, for me, it's been like sort of drawing um, on an amalgamation of, of of people throughout history, and um, and realizing that um, I should I, I take that back. It's not it's not that I don't have living models. It's nobody that you or your listeners would ever have heard of, right? Some of the most important ones are, you know, have, have hidden lives, right? Um, by the way, it's like one of my favorite movies of the last five years is, is, is a hidden life. Um, you know, this, these, these people that, that silently, you know, do, do their thing and, and model great desires. Um, and they, I mean, I just, I just wrote in my sub stack just yesterday about one of those models in my own life. Um, when I was one of the very first silent retreats that I ever went on, um, I uh, sort of foolishly agreed to go sit in the chapel between 2 and 4 a.m. because uh, somebody needed to be there at all times. It was a perpetual adoration chapel. And I saw a man walk in at 4 a.m. who uh, was clearly a mechanic. Um, you know, he's wearing sort of the outfit of a mechanic um, and sat there for an hour. And I, I just I sort of like marveled at like what he was doing and why he was doing it. He was clearly on his way into work. And he made that his first stop of the day between four and five a.m. And I just I walked back to my room totally haunted by this guy. And you know this was thirteen years ago now, and I've never forgot him. And he was in some way modeling a desire for for me, right? He his values, his priorities at that particular time in his life were were just different than mine. And there was something that I admired about him. And 
you know, n- nobody knows who that guy is. I, I don't, I don't know who he is, but he, he modeled something really important to me. Um, and I think for some reason I, w- I was able to recognize that at the time, right? I didn't let that moment pass me by. And the lesson that that particular night taught me was that there are positive models all, all around. And I think it's easy to say, well, you know, I don't know, Elon Musk is a great entrepreneur. He's my model. Um, maybe in some ways he is, but the, the more important ones for me have been the sort of the, 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 the small ones that have sort of formed um, models of desire in, in, in different domains for me and helped me to realize that I need to be paying attention at all times. Yes, and the the paying attention thing, uh, like you said before, is is um is, is getting a bit hard. Yeah, just because of the kind of the, the the constant background humming of everything else. You know, everything's uh, all all dancing, all singing. Uh, you know, Marvel, uh, and actually seeing these you know these these little interactions of people who you know um, are are exhibiting these these wonderful, almost miraculous desires. They're they're easy to they're easy to miss. Um, yeah, I think, you know, back to meet space. That's, that's where we should be going. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the, the question of the show. Everyone gets asked this question. Um, do you have, uh, a subversive thinker, you know, living or dead could be any sort of domain, um, that, uh, was inspirational to you or you think is underrated. People should check out more. Um, well, this is, I, I guess I, I can't go with Gerard because, I mean, I think he's an incredibly <laughs> subversive thinker, but it seems like that, yeah, so. that would be too easy. Um, he, he, he truly is. And it's a, it's a subversive um, reading of, of, of history and, and um, uh, especially sort of the subversive role of, of, of Christianity in the modern world um, that he really elucidated, elucidated better than anybody else, in my opinion. Um, Let's see. Um, subversive thinker, other than Gerard, um, I think for me would be um, would be Dietrich von Hildebrand. You know who I who I mentioned, um, and I've been wrestling for a long time with with how to sort of bring his thought into contact with Gerard's thought. Um, he he hit this idea of of value response and the idea of there being objective values in the in the world that um, aesthetic values, moral values, spiritual values, um, even political values, that, that where some values are better than others and that we, we have a duty to sort of um, shape our personality so that we can respond to them in appropriate ways, um, I think is incredibly subversive in the, in the world that we live in, right? Like where everything has been, uh, everything is totally relative. Um, you know, he... He famously fought against against Hitler, um, uh, was willing to sacrifice a lot for that fight, and um, was was adamant that certain things shape our our personalities to respond to values better than others. Um, you know, he thought that you know um, beautiful like liturgy was was one thing that shapes the personality because every time you engage in it you are, you're sort of learning a hierarchy of values, right? You're, you're learning that some values are more important than others. And I think one of the major problems that we have in the modern world is that there is no hierarchy of values. Like all, all values are sort of treated the same. Um, you ask a lot of companies about their values and they'll rattle a bunch of them off, but there's never any hierarchy to them. 
And there has to be some hierarchy of values. If there's not, if everything's just com- collapsed into the same sort of plane, then they always will end up coming into conflict. And I think that the collapse of a hierarchy of values, um, the fact that we can't agree on a hierarchy of values explains a lot of the conflict that we're seeing right now, right? You have people that have a different hierarchy, but if you ask most people, they, they would have a very hard time articulating what that hierarchy looks like. Um, I think we saw this during COVID, right? Like there were just basic questions about being able to visit a dying family member in the, in the hospital, right? Like how much do we value, um, you know, human dignity, um, as opposed to, uh, minimizing, um, risk and right. So the, these are the questions of the last couple of years in my mind. And he was so subversive because he was adamant about the, the, the need for this and getting an understanding what that, what that hierarchy looks like. And it's not to say that every person, um, well, first of all, um, there is an objective hierarchy that exists in, in, in reality that we can come to know. That's a pretty subversive thought uh, today. Um, and then also the idea that each person, um, based on their personal, I, I would say based on their personal vocation in life, um, should also have a hierarchy of values as well. Um, so that, that to me has been incredibly important. Um, it shaped my thinking in, in many ways, uh, at least as much as Rene Girard. And, uh, and I think that they, they come into contact because one of the ways that the hierarchy of values is destroyed is through mimesis, um, where everything sort of just becomes the same. We become like that, which we imitate. And I think the mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry um, completely collapse uh, values because the highest value becomes the object of our mimetic desire, irrespective of any kind of objective truth. Yeah, so that without kind of a, a metaphysical substructure, uh, kind of anything goes. It's kind of the the, the war of of desire against desire, uh, and kind of a total escalation, and by you know by relationship, total violence in the end. Um, it's it's interesting that you know you, you mentioned this, and you know this thought very much. You know, again, the convergent evolution. I've I've actually had uh, Mary Harrington was the guest just before this, and we we had the same. We kind of got to the same point where we said, you know, okay. Uh, there, there has to be a point of uh, either uncovering natural law. That's also a way of, of looking at this. Um, there is, there is clearly something about the good and the beautiful that is manifested through aesthetics that is visible to the naked eye that a child can realize. Um, there's a, there's a value hierarchy that, you know, even through our disgust responses <laughs> is, you know, is, is embedded. There, there's something there. Um, there are many ways to call on that, but the we, it is a reality. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, we're, we're kind of coming to this. It also feels like we're, we're kind of, um, I know, searching in the dark for things that have been known since the beginning of the world by, by other people, or maybe not, you know, not explicitly, um, you know, like I said, verbalized or put into, you know, um, yeah, put into verbal form, but they've, they've been known in, in a kind of an embodied sense, by people before us and they didn't have to rediscover them. But, you know, if, if this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do. Exactly. Anyway, I, I thank you so much for coming on. This was, this was a pleasure. Um, and uh, I also want to point people to your subsec, uh, anti-memetic, um, and to the book Wanting. Is there any other thing that people should check out or any other place they should go? 
Well, uh, if you have any interest in subjecting yourself to a day of silence, um, you, you'll learn more about that on my, my Substack, um, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm pretty accessible. Um, so if anybody wants to continue the discussion, that's where you can find me. Excellent, excellent. Also, go to uh, I think it's at Luke Burgess on Twitter. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Um, thank you so much, Luke. Thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it. And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you 